Thank you, Dave, and to the praise team, and good morning, everyone. It's good to be here today, and uh, it's good to be able to share God's Word uh, with you uh, as well. Do you know, in, uh, in recent months, I have to say that I've, I found myself kind of withdrawing a little bit uh, from watching the news, uh, and I suppose the reason for that is because I've grown weary and tired with constantly being bombarded with bad news. Brexit, COVID, and now we're looking uh, at the cost of living crisis. And what you find is when you're constantly bombarded by that bad news day after day after day, it wears you down, doesn't it? And so I'm here this morning, and I want to bring you a word of good news to encourage your heart in light of difficult days by pointing you and us to our hope in Christ. But you know, as we we think about hope, it's a word that's often uh, used to display our um, wishful thinking that something might happen. And so maybe you found yourself saying things like, you know, I hope it'll stay dry for the weekend, or I hope that I'll get that big promotion in work. And that's such a shame. Because when we come to the scriptures and we read of our hope in Christ, it subconsciously fills us with that sense of uncertainty, doesn't it? And yet when we read of hope in the Bible, we're not reading about things that are just wishful thinking in our part, but rather we're reading truths that are absolutely concrete and certain. Well, this morning, I I want us to think about our hope in Christ by looking at some familiar verses. You you saw them up on screen a minute ago in Romans chapter 8. But before we get there, let me bring us right up to speed into what's happening in this letter. This letter is, is written by the Apostle Paul, and it's all about the gospel, the beautiful good news of the gospel. And so right at the beginning of the letter, for the first three chapters, he unpacks the bad news declaring most powerfully that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and therefore we're all condemned before God. But after presenting that bad news, he then unpacks the beautiful good news of the gospel, the reality that in Christ and through faith in him alone, we unworthy sinners can be justified before God, that we can know reconciliation with him. But then after that, in chapters 6 and 7, Paul deals with some pastoral concerns in regards to the gospel. He begins by showing us that even though we're saved by grace, that doesn't mean that we can go and live whatever way we want. In other words, we don't have a license to sin. But at the same time, Paul shows us that our sanctification cannot come through mere law-keeping. Rather, we grow through the new way of the Spirit. And so as we come to chapter 8, where our reading is found, Paul begins to unpack what this life in the Spirit looks like. But in addition to this, Paul shows us that Spirit-filled believers will know the blessings of intimacy with the Father, the assurance of being the children of God, and the privilege of being co-heirs with Christ. Yet just as those blessings begin to fill our hearts with praise, Verse 17 just brings us tumbling right down to earth again. For Paul reminds us that yes, our future is glorious, but you know what? It's a road marked with suffering. 
And so for the rest of this chapter, Paul is essentially pointing us to the anchor in our lives that brings us stability in the great tsunami of suffering, our hope in Christ. So with that in mind, let's read Romans 8, verses 18 to 25. This is God's word. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is God's word. Over the last two years of the coronavirus pandemic, I must admit I've done a lot of reflecting. I'm sure you have too. And as I've reflected, one of the questions that I've often found myself asking is this, what is it that kept people going in difficult and dark days? And as I reflected on that question, I came to the conclusion that it was two simple truths. Number one, the knowledge that getting back to normal would be infinitely better than what we're currently experiencing. And number two, the assurance that we would get there, that the pandemic would eventually come to an end. And in my mind, it was those truths that encouraged people to keep pressing on, to keep going no matter what. Well, as you think about that premise, the same can be said when it comes to dealing with the sufferings of the Christian life. In other words, what keeps us going in difficult days is the knowledge that our future in Christ is infinitely better than what we're currently experiencing but also the assurance that that future is absolutely certain in Christ. It's truths like that that encourage us to keep pressing on in faith, no matter what's happening around us, no matter what we're going through at the time. And that is essentially the thrust of this passage in Romans. With this in mind, let's uh, not only think about these two truths, but let's also allow them to encourage our hearts. So you'll see it up on screen there, verse 18, that's the first truth. Our future is infinitely better. In light of this revelation that the road to glory is also a road marked by suffering, Paul says these incredible words in verse 18. He says, for I consider, let's read them, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, it's hard for us to get our heads around what Paul's saying here, isn't it? But it's almost as if he's saying to his readers, yes, this present time is and will be filled 
with great suffering. But don't let that discourage you. Don't let it cause you to take your eyes off your future in Christ. Rather, let the hope of this future enable you to look beyond the clouds of your suffering in the present. Now, of course, let's not misunderstand what Paul's saying here. He's certainly not downplaying the reality of suffering, nor is he saying for a moment that our experience of difficulty ought to be easy. I mean, let's not forget that Paul knew better than most what suffering felt like. He'd been imprisoned. He'd been beaten. He'd been stoned. He'd been chased out of places. He'd almost been killed for his faith in Christ. And so Paul certainly isn't making light of suffering here. He not only knew what it felt like, but he also knew what it was like to be filled with fear and anxiety at the prospect of suffering. We see that as he describes to the Corinthians how he felt when he came into their city. He was filled with fear and trembling, he says. But as Paul weighs up, the sufferings of this life, as heavy and as brutal as they are, he comes to this wonderful conclusion that they're not worth comparing with the glory to come. Now, if you're anything like me, you immediately ask the question, how can you know that? How can you be so sure, Paul? Well, let's not forget that Paul had already seen a glimpse of glory. For in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I think the the reference should be up on screen shortly, Paul speaks of a man in Christ who 14 years prior was caught up into paradise. And it's clear as you, you read those verses that the man Paul is talking about humbly is himself. He was the one who who heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Well, in light of this, Paul clearly saw enough to allow him to conclude that future glory would greatly outweigh all present experiences of suffering. And this is the key. Not because the suffering of today is insignificant, but because the glory of tomorrow is so magnificent. And so it's almost like Paul has a set of scales before him. On the one side, he has the the sufferings of this life, and they are heavy. But on the other side, he has the glory to come, and it greatly outweighs the sufferings of this life, he says. Now, in the here and now, it's impossible for us to get our heads around what Paul's saying. I mean, to one extent or another, we all know what it's like to suffer, and it can never be described as a pleasant experience. Yet even though these moments of suffering are heavy and burdensome, Paul shows us that they shouldn't cause us to lose heart. Why? Because our future glory in Christ will be infinitely better than what we're currently experiencing. Just think about that for a moment with me. Think about the periods of suffering in your life that have completely overwhelmed you, maybe even nearly destroyed you. Maybe it was the sudden loss of a loved one or a broken marriage. Perhaps it was a miscarriage 
or a period of severe illness. Maybe it was a time of depression or financial loss. Perhaps it was an accident or tragedy that rocked your life. Maybe it was just the past couple of years. They've had a real big impact on you. Just think about how you felt in those moments. Think about how many tears that you shed. Well, Paul is saying that when glory comes, it will make every tear shed and every problem met a distant memory. And when you think about that, how amazing must glory be to do that? This is why Paul was able to say uh, elsewhere, and hopefully again we'll get it up on screen. Oh, sorry. There we go. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, admittedly, Our periods of suffering will never feel light. They will never feel momentary at the time. But Paul is saying that compared to glory, the frustrations of this life will fade into insignificance. Again, how amazing must glory be? This is the first truth that we need to focus our attention on as Christians. If we're to persevere in the face of suffering, the knowledge that our future glory will be infinitely better than what we're currently experiencing. In fact, this is what allows us to keep pressing on no matter what comes our way. For not only do we know that our our current experience won't last forever, but we also know that when weighed against our future glory in Christ, our earthly pain will amount to little. Again, that's hard for us to grasp. That's the truth of Scripture. So if you're going through a really difficult period in your life at the moment, or if you feel just weighed down by the burdens and struggles of what's going on in the world around us, hold on to this truth every day of your life and live in light of it. Yes, it will not make your experience of difficulty any less burdensome, but it will fill your heart with hope a hope that does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through his spirit. That's truth number one. Our future is infinitely better. Then truth number two, our future is absolutely certain. Verses 19 to 25. Look at what Paul says in verse 19. And I want you to notice the certainty in which he speaks, not only about creation's experience, but also about the future experience of creation. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, right in the beginning, God created a perfect world. A world without sin, without pain, without suffering, without death, without disappointment. Imagine that. Yet because of Adam's sin, that perfection was broken. It was shattered. 
God not only subjected mankind to corruption, but he also subjected the rest of creation to futility. And so while it's true that the world in which we live in is beautiful, just look out your window. It's a beautiful world. It's also true that the world in which we live is not what God intended it to be. It's broken. That's why we see hurricanes, tsunamis, volcanic eruptions, famine, poverty, outbreaks of disease like COVID. The world in which we live is broken because of sin. And in view of this, Paul says that the creation is waiting. It is watching with great anticipation, almost standing on its tiptoes, waiting in eager expectation for something to happen in the future. What is it the creation is waiting for? Well, Paul tells us it's, it's longing for the revealing or glorifying of, the, of God's children. But why is creation waiting and indeed longing for that moment? Well, very simply, because that future event will mark the day when creation itself will be set free and will be redeemed from its ongoing frustration and struggle with sin. In fact, that's why Paul says in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, while I was <laughs> uh, present at the birth of my two boys, I haven't a clue what it felt like, nor would I ever be foolish enough to say to my wife that I know what it felt like, or indeed any woman in this room. <laughs> I don't know what it felt like. And so instead of trying to describe to you this morning what I don't know, I asked Nicole, my wife, what childbirth was like. It's a dangerous question to ask, by the way, so don't do it. <laughs> but she said that in the middle of it, the pain was horrendous and she just wanted it to stop. But what kept her going was the knowledge that sooner or later a baby would arrive. That reality was certain. And when that eventually happened, Nicole said her pain was instantly gone and she was filled with incredible joy. I can see a few women nodding their heads, so you obviously know what she's talking about. I don't. But isn't it a beautiful picture? Here's the whole of creation groaning. The pain and corruption of sin is horrendous and creation and just wants at the end. But these groans are not hopeless. Rather, they're hope-filled groans that are marked with great anticipation. And so what keeps creation going is the assurance that sooner or later, the groaning will come to an end and there'll be a great celebration. For as the sons of God are revealed, there will be nothing but joy as creation gives birth to a new version of itself. You see, there's coming a day when creation itself will be set free from the corruption of sin and it will be gloriously renewed in Christ. Think about that with me. Consider how wonderful it will be when creation is transformed. Think of a world without thorns and thistles. Think of a world where the lion lies down with the lamb. Think of a world without hurricanes, tsunamis, volcanic eruptions, famine, poverty, outbreaks of disease like COVID. Think of a world without cancer. 
Think of a world where death and decay give way to a vibrant and flourishing creation that will powerfully declare the beauty and the majesty of God. Well, this glorious future is not only infinitely greater than what we currently experience, it's absolutely certain in Christ. Creation is waiting for it with eager expectation. But not only is creation waiting, so are we. Look at what Paul says, verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Here we see that in the, in the same way as creation groans because of the impact of sin, so do we. And we feel that, don't we? We feel the pain of living in a broken world, dwelling in broken bodies. We feel the effects of loss, weakness, depression, disease, aging, and death. We know what it's like to suffer. But we also know what it's like to feel deeply dissatisfied for everything in the world. No matter how beautiful and wonderful it is, leaves us feeling empty inside. Even our deepest dreams and heartfelt desires can never fill that longing in our hearts because they're always short-lived, they're always temporary, and they all can be taken from us. And so in light of this brokenness, the Holy Spirit causes us to yearn for the glory to come when our bodies will be redeemed. And how does he do that? Well, think of what Paul says here about that picture of first fruits. You see, the first fruits of an incoming harvest were essentially the first batch. They were a foretaste of what's to come. So think of a, a modern equivalent. Imagine your, your, your wife's cooking a, a lovely dessert, and just before it's finished, you stick your finger in and taste it. It's a foretaste of what's to come. And so what Paul is, is showing us here is that because we have the, the first fruits of the Spirit, we have a foretaste of our relationship with God. In other words, we experience in part what it means to know God. Therefore, as the Spirit works in our lives, He not only causes us, causes us to become increasingly um, dissatisfied with the temporary things of this world, but He also causes us to long more fervently for the world to come where we will be with Christ in our glorified resurrection bodies where we will know Him fully. You see, in the same way as creation will be set free from its futility, there's coming a day when we will be set free from sin's corruption. Paul says we will receive the fullness of our adoption as our bodies are set free from the effects of sin and glorified in Christ. Can you imagine that? Think of your ongoing struggle with sin aging, sickness, anxiety, pain, tiredness, and so on. Well, Paul reminds us that there's coming a day when those struggles will be gone. Gone. And we will reign in bodies that are fit for glory. There's coming a day when the pain and dissatisfaction of this life will come to an end. And there will be nothing but eternal joy. I don't know about you this morning, but I can't wait for that. It gets me excited. But even more amazing than this is the fact that we will be with Christ. We will be in the presence of the beautiful Son of God and we will know fullness of intimacy with Him. Incredible, isn't it? You see, at the moment, 
Our experience of God is limited. Yes, the Spirit dwells within us. Yes, we have a foretaste of relationship with Him. We can enjoy communion with God uh, in prayer. We can hear His voice through His Word. We can join with other believers as we're doing this morning to worship Him. But you know as well as I do that there are moments when we feel incredibly close to God and moments and times, usually due to our own fault, where we can't feel Him at all. Our experience of of God in this life is somewhat limited, but when we see him in glory, we will know, we will experience the fullness of God. We get a glimpse of this in what John describes in Revelation 20, where he says, and I heard a voice, a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Here we see that the central joy of the new creation will be God himself. For he will dwell with his people and we will know full, intimate, constant knowledge of him. Always feeling, always knowing his loving care. Isn't that wonderful? And so Paul goes on to say in verse 24, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen, or sorry, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Here we see that our view of the future not only affects how we feel in the present, but it also impacts how we act. Therefore, in light of the suffering and frustration of living in a sinful world and dwelling in sinful bodies, we wait with patience for our hope of future glory in Christ to one day be revealed in the knowledge that it's absolutely certain. But of course, let's remember that this hope is not a fleeting desire, that something might happen in the future. Rather, it's concrete certainty that is rooted in the character and promises of God. So even though there there will be plenty of moments when this world and our lives show evidence of brokenness, we don't need to lose heart. The reason for this is because we know with assurance that our future is infinitely better than what we're currently experiencing, and it's absolutely certain. Therefore, we should be able to wait for it with patience. Now, in the day and age in which we live, patience, it's not one of our favorite words, is it? We live in a world of instant gratification. And as a result, many, if not all of us, are marked by impatience in one way or another. If a website doesn't load load as soon as you click the button, you're nearly onto your website provider. If someone doesn't move quickly enough when the lights go green, you're on the horn, aren't you? If the online order doesn't arrive the next day, you're getting angry. And this impatience can quickly transfer into our Christian lives where we essentially want heaven now. And as a result, we begin to cultivate unrealistic expectations of what this present world and what our lives should offer us. We want health wealth, and prosperity. And therefore, we're inevitably crushed when things go wrong in our lives. But instead of being crushed, 
the brokenness of this world and our lives ought to remind us the best is yet to come. It ought to teach us that settling for the here and now will always be the pathway to despair because even the best that this life can offer us is broken because of sin. Even the best job, the best marriage, the best house, the best family, and so on. And that should inevitably cause us to lift our eyes beyond the here and now and to long for the world to come. This is what one writer says. In this way, we can suffer disappointment without being crushed, and we can savor the world's delights without forgetting there's better to come. But just in case we misunderstand what Paul's saying here, let not, let's not forget that waiting patiently does not mean sitting by idly. It's not as if we're sitting in the departure lounge, we're twiddling our thumbs, waiting for God to call our number so that we can go and be with him. Rather, this waiting ought to be filled with activity. What does it involve? Well, of course, it means yearning and striving to know Christ better to read his word, to commune with him in prayer, to love him more intimately, to become like him in holiness. It also means committing to and getting involved in the life of your local church, fellowshipping with God's people, serving the Lord with your gifts in the building up of this body. But it also means spending your life making this hope in Christ known in a lost and dying world. You see, it's wonderful that our future is infinitely better and our future is absolutely certain, but that cannot be said of those we rub shoulders with every day. The future of those outside of Christ is not infinitely better. For without Christ, there's nothing awaiting them but death and destruction, judgment and condemnation. Therefore, we're called to share the gospel with such people. As recipients of God's grace, we're called to, to point them. We're under obligation to point them to Jesus. That's why God hasn't called us home yet. Have you ever thought about that? Why has the sun risen on you today? Why has God not called you home to him in glory yet? The answer is because he still has a work for you to do, to make him known to the ends of the earth. And along the way, there'll be many ups and downs. Likewise, there'll be many moments of pain and frustration, doubt and discouragement, but that should never cause us to lose heart or stop pressing on in that endeavor. For Paul puts it like this, and with this a finish, in 1 Corinthians 15, after talking about the future resurrection, he says these words, you'll know them well. Therefore, my beloved brothers, he's saying in light of all this future glory that is yours in Christ, in light of the future resurrection, what does he say? Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So let's keep pressing on in our faith no matter what. Our future is infinitely better. Our future is absolutely certain. And knowledge of such things is what keeps us going. When times get tough, when our back is against the wall, we keep going in the knowledge that if God is for us, who can be against us? Let me pray. Father, thank you for the the beauty and encouragement of your word here in Romans. Lord, if anything, we could take weeks and weeks just unpacking the the beauty of, of all that you have done for us through Jesus. And we want to give you thanks for that. 
but we do pray especially for those who are maybe brokenhearted at the moment or laid low or, or just feeling discouraged or despondent. Lift their eyes to you. Lift their eyes to Jesus. Help them to see all that he has done for them and all that he will do them for them in the future. Help them to see that their future is infinitely better and absolutely certain. And may that give them the strength and courage to keep pressing on in faith. Lord, for all of us, help us to serve you, to proclaim you to the ends of the earth, pointing people to this hope that can be theirs in Jesus Christ. And if any don't know you this morning, help them to turn to Jesus, to believe in him for the forgiveness of their sins. In Jesus' name. Amen. I think we'll just sing at this point, um, just before we we gather around the table. My Jesus, uh, I love thee. I know thou art mine.